Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. He's not smart or articulate. Those are the words used by a top Amazon lawyer to describe former warehouse worker Chris Smalls. Smalls had led a walkout at the start of the pandemic in 2020 to protest working conditions at his Amazon warehouse. He was fired the same day. This week, his co-workers just voted to form a union. Oh my, this is a good story. Let's discuss this with Chris Townsend, someone who spent four decades as a labor organizer, a Chris Smalls. Well, hello. We are back with another podcast today with a good friend, Chris Townsend. And uh, I'm excited about this. Chris has been a union organizer for decades, four decades, with the uh, UE and also the Algamated Transit Union. And we brought Chris on because um, we want him to fill us in on what's going on with unions today and unions in the past. <laughs> and also talk a little bit about uh, this bombshell of what happened at uh, Stanton Island uh, Amazon Warehouse. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And, and Chris, where are you, where are you uh, located physically right now? Alexandria, Virginia, or Washington, D.C. So Okay, so Washington, D.C. So you were probably there at the end of your career as associated with lobbying and, and so forth? Yeah, for 20 years, I was the UE Washington representative, 21 years, actually. So anyway, I lived here, although I traveled all over the country and did 10 other things other than political action. But, uh, but yeah, so I've lived here for 30 years now. Well, uh, fill us in on your background. I think... Uh, we, we throw around terms like UE and ATU and, you know, union organizing. Uh, give, us some, give us some history of what brings you to, to here today with your expertise uh, related to unions and organizing. Sure, sure. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you, Pat. And thank you, uh, Greg, for having me again. Uh, I, I would put out for folks that Chris Townsend is probably more typical of union organizers than it may seem. And the, the reason I say that is because folks would have almost no way to measure that. Uh, union organizers in the United States are invisible, unknown. Uh, organizing amongst the various unions is in almost all cases a very small piece of what they do. And uh, for a lot of different reasons, the organizing and the organizers are invisible. And there's good and bad with that. But anyway, I would be one of the guys out there for the last 40, I guess, 43 years in the labor movement, 45 as a leftist, as a communist, but, uh, uh, you know, really toughing it out, doing the work, slaving away, having a lot of success and a lot of failure and learning a lot. But again, in an invisible world. Now, that's another discussion, maybe. But, uh, you know, I ended up... Uh, coming up through ATU as a member organizer when I was a kid in a very large organizing drive, uh, which is very rare. It's very rare anymore to have large organizing drives. But the, the one that I came into ATU through was a 3,600 person bargaining unit, which is astonishing uh, by today's standards. This would have been 43 years ago. But on the other hand, I didn't know any better. 
And, uh, you know, I went on to become a local officer and a militant in that union, Tampa, Florida, uh, where we were at that time, where ATU was organizing. And then I, uh, I left only because I met my wife and I went on through several years in a couple of other unions. I was a salt for UFCW in upstate New York. My wife was from Albany, New York. So I was a salt, went through a number of different adventures, uh, ran a recognition strike in a particular campaign. Well, Phil, Phil, I don't know what a, I don't know what a salt is. What is a salt? Uh, salt would be uh, somebody that I deliberately went to work there to organize a union. And okay. it's a tactic that's nothing new. It's used. It's primarily leftists that do it. The folks that have a class consciousness and want to do more militant work and more, uh, you know, increase the tempo of the work that's going on because, you know, you, you need to send people in to many of these. And I should say the Amazon victory in Staten Island, when it finally gets teased apart, it involved tremendous numbers of young leftists, generally left, going in and salting, uh, motivated by their political convictions to get in there and, and organize. So I did that for a few years in upstate New York. I became a business agent organizer for an SEIU local up there, which I had been a member of. And in any event, I, because of my understanding and sort of see, having seen at that point in my career enough business unionism, and knowing the difference, learning the difference between business unionism and what I would call rank and file unionism or militant unionism, I migrated to UE and became a member and then became a staff member. And I was a, a jack of all trades in UE for 25 years. And then I came back to ATU when I had the chance. Again, this is the union where I began as a member and a local organizer, but Larry Hanley, who was president of ATU for most of a decade, uh, tapped me and came and got me and needed me to restart the organizing and campaigning capacity of the ATU, which had lost, well, never had any campaigns uh, capacity and it had allowed its new organizing to virtually disappear. So I did that, I came back and then uh, I've just retired uh, from ATU and here I am now kind of an at-large organizer. But anyway, I mean, that's Chris Townsend. And I think I'm very typical of a lot of folks on the left. We, we slave away, we do what we could do, but we're not, we're not the folks that's, that you will see pontificating about how to organize, even though we've done it. Uh, you guys will have me on, but you know, you'll see, as everyone is witness to now in the wake of the extraordinary uh, Amazon victory, you'll see everybody from, you know, pillar to post dragged out of offices and college offices and think tanks and the media, and they'll hold forth about this. And hopefully uh, viewers and folks interested in this will look for the, what I would call the rank and file voices from this whole chatter. Who are the workers out there that are doing this work and did this work? Pay attention to them. Pay attention to the union workers that are out there doing the work. And uh, it's not to the exclusion of the others, but I think that the media has been over the decades, just very, very lopsided in terms of constantly bringing forth voices, frequently pro-union voices, yes, and we're grateful for that, but these are not practitioners. These are folks who are observers at best and sideline critics at worst. And uh, anyway, I. I guess that's probably a problem that's more acute because we have a very thin left wing 
Amen. Chris, Chris, when you look back over your years, when you look back over the 43 years you spent in this, what, what's happened with the labor movement? I mean, where, where, where did the, why did the labor movement go where it went when you were coming in? What, where was it? And why was it there? And then where did it go? And is it leaving? Is it changing? Is it yeah. moving forward? Yeah, no, Greg, that's that's good. I mean, think about the, the chronology. Uh, I jumped into the labor movement, signed up for duty with the labor movement, just as Jimmy Carter was fizzling out. And uh, anyone that's old enough to remember Jimmy Carter, he, he was a he's turned out to be a very uh, better ex-president than president. Let's put it that way. But his regime literally paved the way for the Ronald Reagan years. It, Reagan would not have been possible had it not been for the bungling and timid misleadership, I guess, well-intended perhaps of, of Jimmy Carter. This is an, unfortunately the role that Democrats too often play. They sort of do a good job of getting elected and then paving the way for the reaction that comes. Uh, but in, that's another issue. But on the other hand, what, what have I seen? I've seen a long and painful decline of the labor movement, but I want, and that's the answer that a lot of folks would say, well, yeah, Townsend, the uh, labor movement's been in steep decline since the late 70s, uh, 60s even, but decline is not the word. It hasn't declined. It's not an act of God. It's not an act of gravitational fall, you know, no, the labor movement has been systematically destroyed uh, by the employers and the state uh, forces for that entire 43 years and any number of different ways, regime after regime, corporation after corporation. And remember the destruction visited on labor can be, uh, it doesn't have to be politically overt. I mean, we have lost I, uh, countless millions of members due to the phenomenon of plant closings and the relocation of work, the maldistribution of the benefits of new technology and all these things, you know, just you name it. And anyway, I, I look at the labor movement today and it bears almost uh, very little resemblance to the movement that I initially joined. And it's been uh, um, 43 years, which is hard for me to say because I don't feel that old, but I guess uh, I am getting there uh, better than the alternative, I suppose. But, uh, but the labor movement today finds itself in a jam of epic proportions but a jam that most of the labor leadership is averse to even acknowledging or acknowledging in any serious way. It'll get some lip service, you know, yeah, we need to do this, we need to do better there. But then they continue to repeat the formulas and the practices over and over and over again that have brought this result or lack of results. So it's, uh, it makes the Amazon upsurge, rebellion or whatever you would want to call it, this uh, uh, election victory, it just makes it all the more significant to see this group of workers who are disconnected, at least until now, they've been disconnected or unconnected with the predominant labor officialdom and the predominant, you know, guys like me, I was not there. Guys like me were not there leading this struggle. These were rank and file workers, um, leftists, homemade, self-taught, uh, motivated, just ordinary workers and militants doing this, and they have truly wrought a work of art here that uh, most folks, um, maybe this dovetails, uh, Greg, with your question, 
I did some statistics and most folks who are not part of the labor movement wouldn't know this. And I would venture to say that most folks who are part of the labor movement would not know that the crisis is a crisis of union organizing. What do I mean by that? When I joined the labor movement all those years ago, the labor movement would conduct in an annual period somewhere between three and 5,000 union elections, meaning that the National Labor Relations Board, this is just the private sector. This doesn't include the public sector or the Railway Labor Act, rail and airline, but in the National Labor Relations Board realm, which is the private sector, uh, the labor movement would generate somewhere between three and 5,000 union elections that would always cover multiple hundreds of thousands of workers. And every single one of those elections was initiated by the union. I mean, you got people have to remember, we don't get union elections in this country on some calendar basis or like you get political elections. You got one every two years or every three years. No, you have to fight like hell just to get up the beach far enough to force your employer through the NLRB to conduct an election. Okay, so three to 5,000 elections covering hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, during the pandemic here, we reached an all-time low since the NLRB was started in 1938, where there were, and I looked up the number, 954 union elections in 2021. Now, there was a pandemic. Let's not uh, ignore that, but let's go back to 2016. There were only 1,396, essentially 1,400 union elections in the United States. Uh, and uh, the additional thing that ought to be mentioned is in every year that I looked up in the last 15 years, uh, there was an, a number of decertification elections, meaning these, this is where the employers attack and want to eliminate the union in a, a number of shops equal to 10% of those. So if you had it, that year was 1400, there were about 140 decerts. So this is not a net gain type situation. And then recall, you don't win every one of those elections. The union win ratio fluctuates over time. It hovers a little bit more than 50% now. So what does that mean? Distill all this down. 954 elections were run in 2021 and only uh, you know something more like 500-ish were successful. Now, that is all bad enough to consider how we got from there to here. But let's, let's rip open the carcass a little further and discover another awful truth. The size of the units that are voting in these elections used to be commonly in the thousands and hundreds. If you were to go on the NLRB website today, you will see the size of the voting units has been reduced to dozens several dozens, uh, 100, 150, 200. And, uh, and, and the statistic that is really um, relevant to today, and actually uh, even beyond Amazon, is that the number of elections that even get to be held in units of more than 500 people, you can count on less than one hand, sometimes two hands. So think about what that means. The labor movement has not only been destroyed where it exists, and essentially driven underground in a lot of sectors uh, to a semi-legal or illegal existence uh, dormancy. Uh, but then you've got, even where there are unions, uh, you know, contesting on the field of battle, and even where there are 
unions in motion to do this, the amount of it is, is I don't want to call it insignificant because I don't want to belittle any of the efforts that are going on. Jesus, if we're trying to organize two guys someplace, we should be happy about it. But on the other hand, the numbers are relatively insignificant compared to not only the destruction of the labor movement, but then the overall growth of the economy. Remember, the economy today includes, I don't know, 50 or 70 million more workers than it did when I joined. So I paint that picture, which is in some ways a very sobering assessment of how the labor movement in the United States at least was reduced in numbers. And it, it also illustrates, I think, in tremendous uh, stark relief, how amazing the Amazon success was. Well, first, Chris, of all, even, first of all, even to get an election and then let alone to win with the margin of win that they had. Okay, I want to change a little subject, uh, uh, the subject, because you're really kind of uh, being a bummer here uh, with how, how, <laughs> how the atrophying of the union. I want to, I want to say this is, let's, let's look at something else. Here is a tweet uh, from uh, Chris Pesanowski, and it's Craig congratulating his friend, who was Chris Small's buddy, yep. uh, Medina for the win and he indicated that this particular book the which i read which is just unreal how right. pressing it it is today served as a foundation for how they went about slowly uh building up the success that they had and I followed you in uh, several of your YouTube videos and your writings, and you mentioned that book, and you also mentioned this book uh, as history of the untold, uh, uh, labor's untold story. And as bad as the circumstances are assaulting unions, and it's not just that unions are ineffective and going away, it's that Amazon sent four, spent $4.3 million just on consultants to destroy unions, not the, right. not the organizing amount of money, just consultants to break them up. So yeah, it's the, not- The it's cost, not, uh, the cost, Pat, financial cost that a company is, is 50 times greater than just that 4.3 million, because it doesn't include the enormous payroll cost of all the supervision doing this and the workers when they're right. paid to sit through these meetings. So. so when you were a young Chris, you use this book and now we have young Chris in uh, New York uh, using this book. T tell us about some of the history of the, 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 the foundational fathers that set forth how we go about doing this and some of the lessons you've learned from those early books that have application now. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, I'll be glad to do that. But Pat, let me, let me jag, you know, jag back to something and just um, maybe I was too long-winded, but I, I, people commonly will listen to a report like I gave there, a very sobering report. And it is, it's overwhelming. You know, one might be able or might be inclined to say, wow, Jesus, this sounds like something that's like mission impossible. There's no doubt about that. But here was the end part of that that I just wanna squeeze in here. And, and this I think is being lost by the media at large. At least I haven't seen it. I hope uh, some folks pick up on it. But in the last couple months, 
we have seen, now remember what I was saying about tiny bargaining units, too few elections and not enough workers involved in this, all true. But in the last couple of months, guys, we have seen, and I ran the numbers, there have been 15,000 workers in just three sets of campaigns that have now reached out and successfully joined the labor movement. Everybody's familiar with the Amazon Staten Island campaign, covers 6,000 workers, probably will grow as that company grows, 6,000. This will be the biggest union election this year, but it's not alone. Uh, the Starbucks campaign, let's talk about Starbucks. Starbucks is now approaching uh, activity in 175 different stores, probably more at this point in time. Do the math, 35 people average in their stores, that's well over 5,000 people. Uh, by itself, equally dramatically important and critical as Amazon. And then just the other day, you, you folks may have seen the United Electrical Workers, my old union, just organized a unit of 4,000 people at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology organized in an NLRB election. So let that, I just wanted to get that on there to say that something is happening here and that it's not an accident or some act of God that, that we suddenly have almost 15,000 people in motion where this hasn't happened in decades that we've had that. It would be 30 years, 40 years since we had anything similar to this. So it's all good. Now, as to the question of the books, uh, you know, just in brief, I also have the uh, William Z. Foster's American <laughs> Trade Unionism here. I always have it here. This book for me personally, just as one little guy, one small part of the machinery here, I was a teenage leftist and I had joined uh, Michael Harrington's Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee in 1977. And, I, and, and those of you that are old enough to remember the world before the internet, it was a lonely thing. Uh, you know, you joined, you sent your dues, and it wasn't, and I was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at that time where I grew up. There wasn't a lot going on. So I was a mail order member for about almost two years. In any case, in later, 20, no, later 1979, uh, that time the DSOC had a youth meeting in Western Pennsylvania. And I found out about it by reading the newsletter. And I thought, man, I want to go to, never been to a socialist meeting. I'm not sure I had even met another person or maybe more than one or two. So I went to that meeting in Western Pennsylvania, about 125 people. And I remember being blown away, 125 other leftists. And these were youth. And it was primarily students. It was probably 115 students, college students primarily. And here I was a young worker, no college was in my future, but there was a handful of us. Now, Mike Harrington was what he was, but at that stage of my life, this was a very critical thing for me to be exposed to. So there were a couple of old Social Democratic trade unionists there. B.J. Wittick was one of them, Roger Robinson from Detroit, uh, and Harrington. And they had the presence of mind, at least, to take the workers aside, because again, the whole conversation was dominated by campus organizing and all these things. But they took us aside and had a conversation with us, the young workers. Well, 
they were waving this around this the uh, earlier edition of this and it's waving around and i'm trying to write down the name and i'm like well what publisher i had never heard of international publishers i had never heard of william z foster certainly never heard of that book but i knew that i was going to be going somewhere after that meeting after high school and i was going to be going into a workplace someplace and i thought jesus i i and you guys know the the labor literature back then was difficult to find and it was sometimes helpful, but there was no internet. There was no central place that you could go and look it up. You had to stumble your way into it or hope that somebody would share it with you if you were friends. Well, anyway, I got a copy of that book and it literally, it sounds like a cliche, but I'm only sitting here today having done the things that I did because I got a copy of that book. Because the, the significance of that book, guys, and I think it bears repeating today, that book is being, you know, the, the, see, the reason why I wanted to mention what I mentioned about the three major campaigns moving is that that book is being used in all three of those campaigns. We thankfully had one of the young workers, Justine Medina, from the uh, Amazon campaign. She was the one that blurted this out, and it got into the media that, that they were using, as in part, Foster's um, architecture of how to organize but that same architecture is currently being used at Starbucks. And I know that because I know some of the Starbucks workers and they're using Foster's techniques and in part, in part, uh, as is UE, UE being the union that never stopped referencing Foster in terms of it. So I think it's, it's a, a key validation of what Foster, you know, his life's work and what he was able to document. And I commend that book to everybody. William Z. Foster's American Trade Unionism, International Publisher. Buy it, read it, pass it on. Because Foster had gone through many different organizing adventures. He migrated steadily over time from an ultra left syndicalist view to a view that I think is preponderant view today, which is we have to do something to stimulate the existing labor movement to greater activity. And that is where our role should be, not trying to create out of thin air, pure new unions. Uh, and I think, you know, even though the Amazon group is a new union, it, it it's not motivated by some desire to capture the whole world with this new contraption. It was just that this was what made sense to those workers at that time. It may actually grow and burgeon into a new national union of its own. It may end Chris, up- Chris, what, what, what separates that thinking, that thinking that Foster brings, and it seems to have captivated a lot of younger workers from the existing model that the trade union movement uses. I mean, why, why is that so attractive? What is the, What are the di key differences between the way organizing and, and approaching building unions and recruiting people into unions? What separates the old way or the way that the, the, the establishment uses from the foster approach? Right, right. I, I think I, I'll just uh, review my own development as a young worker. Uh, you know, every worker who goes to work knows that the boss is not your friend, or at least those that don't want to become a foreman or a boss. Uh, you, you see the inequity and the completely 
the dictatorial nature of the workplace. You know, and it's always a shock. Workers get out of school, high school or college, and they go to work and they go from an environment where there's some freedom to an environment where there's no freedom. And when you go into that, you instinctively as a worker, you know, begin to have at least a suspicion of the boss, if not an outright dislike or even hatred of the boss. You can see coming forward in the interviews of many of these Amazon workers, they hate the boss because they've been tormented, so abused, so exploited ruthlessly, and for a systematic purpose that, that then they're just tossed away as so much trash. So that anger, that righteous anger is there. But I, I think that, that what ends up happening is that every worker goes through their own process of going through that. And for those that get into unions or become familiar with unions, which is some, they begin to instinctively recognize that frequently their own union leadership, whatever it is, has become comfortable, has become complacent, is profiting perhaps even from the union, profiting very handsomely in many of the business unions with high salaries and benefits and whatnot for the leadership and for the staff. And there's a reaction against that because there's a natural feeling that the union should exist strictly to advance the interests of the members, clean up problems and do this. So there's sort of a righteous motivation, righteous anger, class consciousness that begins to come forward. So for those who then are introduced or stumble on William Z. Foster, they see that he too went through this process and he was very insightful and succinct in documenting the, uh, that whole uh, experience of a worker. And that Foster through some of the chapters dissects not just a theoretical dissection of business unionism, but he dissects its, its real deplorable aspects of, uh, you know, leadership that ruthlessly milk the union for their own personal benefit and who maintain control through unethical and sometimes, you know, or dictatorial methods. And that the workers bring in, you know, a, a longing and sort of a natural desire for something better than that and something that performs better for them. And uh, it's the old adage that I learned when I was at UE. You know, you, you should join the union to get something out of the boss, not to get something out of the union. You know, think about that. You should join the union or you do join the union to get something out of the boss, to use the union to do that, not to get something out of the union. But yet union militants and activists will run into union after union after union where that doesn't apply. They'll look around and they'll say, well, wait a minute here. You know, my $2 grievance is ignored, but the guy who's running the union makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You, know, you begin to see these contradictions. And uh, in any case, Foster in his earlier period was quite insightful and quite pointed about this and about pointing out that it is, it is required for the left elements to oppose these business union excesses and these business union failures and these kind of things. And it's, it's more than that because it's also, you will find, show us an extremely highly paid and compensated union leadership. And I'll show you a leadership that's generally lacking in very much fight. Uh, very probably much more interested in collaborating with the employer and getting along with the employer rather than waging that daily struggle to represent the workers. So it kind of spreads 
and it becomes a whole philosophy of unionism. And I think that that what we're witnessing, I know what we're witnessing, is the introduction of a new generation of workers and militants and activists to an alternative mindset of what the union can be, should be, and needs to be, which is that the union should exist to militantly represent its own membership and advance its interests. And then in some ways, some of these folks will also learn it should also be there to advance the interests of the entire working class. That becomes the political graduation, so to speak, that you go through. And it's it's fascinating for me to watch. And I, I guess it was you, Pat, who asked me about the book. You know, when I was talking about Foster's book and the role that it had on me, uh, what led me about five years ago to start a just a one-man drumbeat to get this book back into print, because I thought, you know, there is an internet, you can go on and find a lot of Foster articles. Uh, the uh, manual on organizing in steel is one of the pieces that the Amazon workers used. I know that Amazon or uh, Starbucks workers are using that. Again, UE never stopped using that. But the uh, the book had languished, gone out of print in the early 1980s. It was harder and harder to get a copy of. Uh, Chris Townsend here began to get fatigued at having to go to copy shops and bootleg copies of that book, which is a real pain in the ass if you've ever stood at a copy machine and tried to copy it page upon page upon page. It's mind numbing. But I did that. And I got tired of it. So I finally just called up international publishers, uh, which I had no real connection with. Uh, just I knew of them and was a good customer, I suppose, over the decades. And, uh, and I said, hey, what, what's it going to take to get this book back into print? And it was a little more laborious of a process than I thought it was going to be. But I'll blow my own horn. And, but I, I blow my horn as an example for others. I just said to international, give me the bill. How much is it going to cost? That's always, you know, frequently the, the, the stumbling block. And at a certain point, they couldn't. I mean, it was, uh, you know, with the book business is totally different now in terms of digitization and books on demand and whatnot. But what I knew about it, I knew that we could get this done. So I just persisted, kind of made a pain in the ass out of myself, I think. And I finally just from the start said, send me the bill for the, what it's going to cost. And they never did. So I wrote them a check. I did a little checking around and I thought, I'm just going to send them a check. So I sent them a check for $600, which I'm not a wealthy man, but I thought I, this is my obligation to do this. And th that was the trigger. It got back into print and it's selling very, very well. And I venture to say after the Amazon events, it's selling even better as it should. I know how many I've used and it was just what one man could do. And I'm glad I did it. And uh, uh, it's actually any of you that follow international publishers, I, I think it was at least part of a process that has led to kind of a whole renewal of international publishers with new titles coming forward, other out of print books that are coming back in. Uh, you're going to see a new website here very quickly, a new appearing website. And it will allow finally the circulation and sale of a lot of the old literature that is worthy and some of the new stuff that comes along. So I guess I would just hold that out, guys. Not that I want any credit for that, but you know, sometimes you just have to say to yourself, damn it, I'm going to get this done one way or the other because I know that this needs to be done. 
And uh, I saw an announcement in in one of those tweets. I saw that the international now says that they're actually going to reprint the pamphlet on organizing in steel that the Amazon workers specifically referenced. I'm I'm waiting on the phone call for somebody to ask me to make a contribution to pay for it. I'd be glad to. Uh, well, I think we'll uh, really we'll put a link in the book in the in in our description below. You know, I, I some of the things you were talking about, though, I thought was really good. The, you know, the the um, workplace is a dictatorship, and it's stacked against the worker. It's always stacked against the worker. But the thing that Foster talked about, and I think you talk about this, is that you know we are a brotherhood working for each other. We are we are together as a group. Uh, and Chris Smalls, with his his team there, really said that we're we're not just going to get quit leaving the job and let other people yeah. coming in. No, we're going to stay here and fight for what we think is the right thing. And look what they're fighting for: better salary. They're in New York, and a full time person there is making thirty plus thousand dollars a year. How, yeah. how do you live in How do you live in New York on that kind of money? So they want. 30 bucks an hour, which is would be a rounding error on Bezos's yacht payments. They want a longer, uh, they want breaks that are longer, <laughs> giving them the ability to go to the bathroom. Uh, those, those types of, and then they want safety features. The Amazon warehouses typically have four to five times the number of structural um, uh, uh, problems with with uh, repetitive injuries and so forth yeah. as other comparable warehouses in the industry. So they want that addressed. That's Foster was just trying to get uh, steel workers from having twelve hour day work weeks down to eight, and people thought he was crazy. You know, uh, I don't know. I, it's no, I I would agree with that, Pat. And I, I this is the right point to mention that it's not an accident that Amazon has experienced this, uh, this upsurge, this rebellion. And, and let's be clear, everybody, a, a union election today, remember what I was talking about, none of these elections are gifted to you, you have to run through that minefield and you have to run up that beach to through withering fire from the employer to legal and illegal both to even get an election. And then you have to win the election. And then the, elect, the election there only gives you the right to try to bargain a first contract for uh, a year. And I, I should say, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but uh, at least in today's news, Amazon has expressed its uh, intention to file legal objections to the victory, which is another bullshit uh, process through the NLRB where the employer can allege anything and it will drag it out for months or years. And that's one of their strategies to ultimately, they hope, succeed, even though they've lost the election. And uh, in any case, the, uh, the, the I think Amazon is, you know, we, we all of us as uh, leftists and trade unionists, we've watched the evolution and devolution of the business model. There's no doubt that the Amazon business model has, has hit upon something and it's ruthless and exploitive and it's, it's prone to speed up and, and a high turnover model and all of the things. And I think that this rebellion of these workers and in other Amazon facilities is, reminds me at least 
if I could draw a historical analogy, I think this is a bit of the Henry Ford payback. You know, Henry Ford, any of you that know the history of the United Auto Workers, while well, the prior unions that existed in Ford and then eventually the United Auto Workers, that, you know, the, it had a reputation as a good place to work and paternal and all this. But if you worked there, you were driven like an animal. If you worked there, you, the production was driven to the limit and that you were used up and thrown away. And, uh, and of course, that's a very profitable model for the employer. And I think it's no accident that in Amazon, we see these workers, there's a, there's a very common cohort when you watch it, they're all between 20 and 30. You don't see very many old time, you don't see guys like us working there in great numbers because you can't keep up and they're, you're weeded out. You're either fired, you're injured, you're exhausted and you leave. And uh, it's also a high overtime model. I think you had mentioned, Pat, about how do workers survive? Well, they survive on these low wage jobs with gargantuan amounts of overtime, which takes its toll on the body and the mind. And, and the company's aware that as long as they can get thousands of people at the gate every day to come in as new entrants to this rat race, they will be able to expend the folks they have. And of course, that in and of itself wouldn't make it any different than many companies and industries in the United States today. But I think it's very clear that uh, Amazon applies a certain scientific uh, version of this that is qualitatively more exploitive than what you'll see in many business models. And therefore, that's why they're getting the rebellion against it. And they should get the rebellion against this. And so it's great, great. Oh, sorry, uh, Greg. You uh, speaking to what Chris just said? You had a rel You have a relative, or had a relative working at a warehouse, didn't you? Um, my grandson. My grandson worked at Amazon um, in uh, North Carolina for a while, and he uh, had a side job because he had to have a side job as a valet. And uh, he quit Amazon to work full time as a valet. He made better money, had better hours, better conditions, was treated better, and that's. Uh, that's that's what you get. Uh, but I, you know, there's there's an unmentioned here, and that is, you know, you do know that we have a president that says that he's the most labor-friendly president in the history of this country. And we know the Democratic Party is always proclaiming itself as the the friend of labor and the party of labor. What role have they been playing in in advancing the cause of labor in recent years? Yeah. Can yeah. you address that, uh, Chris? Be glad, be glad to. Uh, I'll, I'll answer that question by uh, regaling everyone with a short conversation I had with um, our now failed governor candidate, Democratic governor candidate here in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe. Anybody that's familiar with Terry McAuliffe has kind of a, some would say a colorful history, I would say a discredited history, but anyway, a, a, a very prominent Democrat, former head of the DNC and whatnot. Well, anyway, he lives in Virginia and he ran for governor. He had been governor years ago and then he ran again uh, in the last election. So he made the rounds of all the labor events and whatnot. And I ran into him uh, at one of these events and uh, he doesn't know me from Adam. And, uh, you know, he was campaigning, so I won't hold that against him. But he makes this comment that, well, Chris, you know, if you elect me, I'm going to be the most pro-labor governor in the history of Virginia. So I thought, hmm, all I could think of to say, guys, was I said, well, Terry, I says, 
you wouldn't have to do much to earn that distinction. You wouldn't have to, you know, this is, after all, the capital of the Confederacy and, you know, et cetera, on and on. And it's a state with 3% union density. The state that I live in here, Virginia, has, can you believe this? You want to talk about a rounding error, a statistical anomaly. 3% of the private sector workforce here in Virginia belongs to a union. So anyway, he was a little nonplussed by this and he went on with this campaigning. But, you know, I, I would say that all of these commentaries that we get and, you know, these commentaries that actually do come out of the mouths of some of these Democrats, we welcome them. They ought to all be measured in a bigger context, however. I think what we have to be on guard against is the fan club of people who want to try to magnify these comments into something that they are not. And we've lived through this in the last 50 years with Democrat upon Democrat upon Democrat who will say some of the right things at campaign times, say some of the right things at the times that they need to be said, or they're in, perhaps in front of a union audience or you know, playing to, the, playing to the choir. But then you have to measure the practical result of what they do. And I would submit to you that while, yes, we have had in successive democratic regimes, we have had some incidental pieces and parts of, a, of a initiatives and active, active things that were helpful and welcome. In comparison to the scale of the need, it is so lacking. It is so far behind. Uh, and therefore, you have to say, OK, you know, yeah, he did this. Yeah, she said that. But what did it really amount to in view of the scale of the 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 uh, the challenge or the the need? I I would this makes me think of something that I customarily will do with Democrats. I mean, let's get, let's be honest, guys. The Republican Party used to have a small union faction in it. That's gone. That's been driven out, uh, if not killed. Uh, and the Democrats now exist as, you know, the one, one of the two national parties that we're allowed to have uh, that has at least some union faction within it. But uh, I would always say to any of the political Democrats who were listening to us, uh, which is not all of them by a long shot, when we have organizing fights and things like Amazon, and I would always, and I, I do used to do this uh specifically and very pointedly, I would say that none of the elected Democrats in this country, not one, this is one of those absolutes, not one would accept as their electoral makeup something like what these workers had to go through in the NLRB. Now, what do I mean by that? None of the, Joe Biden would not consider it a democratic process for him to have to go through an election where his opponent can pay the voters, pay to sit through their anti-Biden messages. They would never accept this as a legitimate election. They would never accept it when the opposition could fire and harass and terrorize the voters that sit there. I mean, you, 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 everyone sees where I'm going with this. No Democrat, no, no politician, well, maybe rightists today wouldn't give a damn, but no Democrat would ever accept their own election being one. And then punchline of all, as I have said before, Democrats get elections on a calendar basis. 
you just won one or you lost one, there's going to be another one in two years or so many years. The labor movement has to fight and bleed for every single election it gets. So I, I guess I toss that out because I think that this illustrates, in my mind anyway, the fact that the whole concept of what is democratic, uh, what is democracy, what are elections, it, it's been lost. It's been it's drifted into some realm that I don't understand. And that I think that these workers at Amazon really, and, and Starbucks as well, and the UE members that I was talking about up at MIT, these folks realize that this is not some book of Hoyle contest here where we're going to have our rights respected and we have an NLRB here that's going to protect our right to do this and that if anything happens, it'll be adjudicated and justice will come. No, that's not what these workers realize. That it, when you're organizing a union today, it is an illegal act. It is an underground act that you're forced to do that because the employer has every political and financial reason to want to repress you and fire you and harass you and do other things. Uh, and, you know, as long as the Democratic Party is incapable or refuses to recognize, you know, that basic truth and that they're then for therefore realizes that it has to affirmatively do things and not just make statements and not just feel our pain. I, who was that? Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton walked around for years feeling our pain. Well, screw him. Uh, I, you know, it didn't help me one bit right. for him to feel my pain. So, so, Chris, I think you're being too nice to the Democrats. I, I, um, I have here a tweet from Stephen Greenhouse, who's the um, labor journalist for New York Times, um, Guardian, very prominent. He is tweeting the day of, in my 25 years writing about later labor, the unionization victory at Amazon Warehouse in Staten Island is by far the biggest uh, beating the odds David versus Goliath unionization I have ever witnessed. That's his tweet. So how many Democrats in the House of Representatives tweeted or made some acknowledgement about the biggest union victory in the history of this fellow's writing? Well, <clears throat> I have the answer to that. 32 out of the 221 Democrats, 32, you know, 10 to 15%. In the Senate, 10 out of 50. You had Bernie, you had, a, you know, yep. Patty Murray. Of course, how many Republicans? Zero. To make things worse, AOC was specifically asked to come and to support this particular, you know, union effort, the small said, and she went to a gala event at the Met instead. You look at the Democrats, what's going on in Hollywood with Beyonce and all these people where the unions are saying, please do not cross the picket lines here. And they go on to their gala events, oblivious to the fact. Not only are they ineffective, they're harmful. They're part of the problem. They're a big part of the problem. And you can't, uh, and when you're having, when you're having responses of support like that, like that, that's. Oh, Pat, I, I would agree. Completely. I, I don't know what to say. I just want to. No, I, I would agree completely. Look, and uh, anyone that would know me, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, if I'm if I'm perceived as being soft on Democrats, uh, it, it's probably an understatement. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, I to me as a lifetime union militant and organizer, the Democrats are increasingly irrelevant. 
I see this as a collision between the workers and these corporations. And most of the time, the political infrastructure doesn't matter. It doesn't play into it. Now, that's a damning indictment in its own right. But maybe that's why I don't, you know, I, I would say this. Uh, union organizers sometimes make this mistake. They run around and think that if they get political statements of support, like it actually helps. It generally doesn't help because none of the workers know who most of these folks are anyway. And if they say something nice, it's usually pretty, you know, they parse their words pretty carefully. And it's, uh, it's just us not motivational or it's not fitting their reality. So, you know, I, I guess uh, I, I would say that the, the, my forecast would be that if it turns out, as I hope it is, that the Amazon victory and these other victories are a sign of some shifting sands here in terms of the class struggle and the labor movement, the Democratic Party will be absent from it, certainly as an official uh, piece. It'll, it'll be on the enemy side. Uh, I think some of you may have seen that the one of the most vicious, expensive consultants that Amazon used is a Democratic Party consultant. And then more of these kinds of stories will come out. Oh, who's the guy that used to be work for the Biden administration and now is their chief spokesman? Jay Carney? Uh, it could be, yeah. I think it's an outfit called Global Strategies. And okay. it's one of a garden variety of these outfits. They work both sides of the street. They beat in workers' brains when they can make a buck and they'll elect Democrats and Republicans if they can make a buck. But but where I go with that is, is that I think that uh, maybe I'll, I'll I'll say it this way. I have contended in the last decade that the reason why we're seeing the rise of phenoms like Trump in all of its ugliness, and we're seeing uh, a similar uh, parallel, but all, you know, many ways diametrically uh, opposed uh, rise of someone like a Sanders. Uh, it's being driven by the mass thought patterns of the working class that is, that is breaking with the old order. The old order of things is discredited. Now, what do I mean by the old order of things? It's the life of a worker. It's your school, it's your employer, it's your politicians, it's your church. It's, it's that things are coming unglued. Things are getting worse day by day. Nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. You're bewildered usually. And therefore, the old order can be swept away with the throw of an arm. So these other forces arise, Trump, Sanders. Now, there's more to it than that, I realize. But I think that that's part of what happened here with Amazon. These workers looked at the old order of the unions, and they didn't seek it out. They thought, no, we'll do this ourselves. The old order is discredited. On that now, note, Chris, on that, note, on that same note, uh, would you comment on uh, one of the other aspects, of course, of trade union militancy is strikes. Would you comment on the recent increase in, in, in some strikes? I don't think it's a trend that we can really say is overwhelmingly apparent, but there have been some very significant strikes in recent years. And secondly, changes within the labor movement. For example, the Teamsters just elected new leadership. Can you comment on the meaning of, of those things, of those factors? Sure, sure. Strike struggle. Well, when I when I gave that somewhat dreary uh, review, scientifically factual but dreary, yes, about the diminishment of new organizing, 
I could and I won't, but I could offer you the same, maybe even worse numbers when it comes to the vast, vast uh, reduction in strike struggle. And we all, all of us have seen that. Young people may not have lived through that. But uh, yeah, strikes are too few and too small. And uh, there are, have been some upticks in this. And I think that this is also, a, you know, it's connected to obviously the broader thought patterns amongst, I think, the younger workers. And it's driven by desperation. It's driven by what do you got to lose? Uh, I think it is aided and abetted, at least for now, with a situation where if you're able-bodied, you can get a job somewhere doing something just about anywhere in the country. It won't be a great job, but you can grab onto one of those threads. And that emboldens people. That's, that's part of why I think uh, the Amazon workers were stuck to it, because they knew. They see so many people coming and going through there. They know their day will come, and they figure, what do I got to lose? So for as long as that lasts, I think the strike struggle will pick up. But the, as everybody knows, the strike struggle is not just a matter for the workers to consider. The unions themselves have to reconsider their whole approach to unions or their unwillingness to strike in most places. And I think, uh, I know my experience in ATU recently, uh, we had a strike, uh, which I played a part in orchestrating and setting up others as well where we struck uh, a French multinational transit company here in Washington, D.C. for 84 days. And it brought the greatest victory that I've ever seen in any strike struggle I was uh, involved in. This was a strike where we struck as private workers and the settlement driven by the local has reconverted these workers back to the public payroll where they never should have been privatized from. And this is life-changing for these workers, not only in terms of their wage, but now they have a pension, a real pension, and they have uh, health insurance and other parallel benefits. So this was a gigantic leap forward. Now, did the leadership of my union really absorb the meaning of that, or did we try to replicate that? Well, no, not yet. But it proved to me that the strike weapon is absolutely still a very uh, powerful tool that needs to be used. I think we're facing today not just the historic business union reluctance to want to engage in strikes. And I should say, having been on strike in my life, it's not, uh, you know, you walk out that gate, you walk out that office door, you, you may never come back. So you, it's a sobering thing when a worker votes for strike and, and engages in it. But that being said, I think that we face not only that ideological disposition against strike struggle, but the, the amount of actual practical experience that anybody has in it today is, is also a problem. Uh, you know, I venture to say when I, I was the one that took the strike vote at this uh, strike here in Northern Virginia, uh, I venture to say I might've been the only guy in the room that had ever actually been on strike. And that's a sobering aspect to this. So we're gonna relearn it by doing it. Right. Right. And the Teamsters? Uh, the new leadership of the Teamsters. Interesting. There's a long history there, which some folks may know. Uh, one has to be optimistic that it'll start taking, they will start taking a more aggressive uh, uh, push in many different directions. It's a key union. Um, 
in, in several key sectors. So we have to root for it. I guess uh, we will see. Uh, I saw that the two leaders, of, or at least two of the leaderships of Amazon have just gone and met with the president of the Teamsters, uh, I think yesterday, I think it was. So not sure exactly what that means, but I think it's not, it's encouraging. The Teamsters uh, are one of probably a dozen unions that are actually out there trying to conduct uh, organization amongst Amazon workers, which I, we didn't mention this, but I should say, you know, Amazon is, it's not alone that the ALU union uh, popped up. It's the first one to have success and it is an independent union, but there's a dozen name brand unions out there that have been trying to organize Amazon. There's also another independent union uh, that I know of, at least one of them that's trying to organize. And there's, uh, you know, activity in dozens and dozens of Amazon facilities, low level, yes, uh, preliminary kind of foundation building. But, uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting to me kind of how this is going to come down. I think the AFL-CIO is going to have to play a role in this because there's probably not going to be one union organize Amazon. It'll, it'll, it'll probably end up like the rest of our employers, broken up pieces of other unions. Well, is, is the AFL ever going to act like a federation and try to pull these elements together so that even if they uh, did belong to other unions, there was some coordination, there was some, you know, cooperation amongst them. We'll see. I, I, I would not get my hopes up about that, but, uh, but you know, it, it's an interesting time to watch and to see the uptick in strike struggle is encouraging, just like the organizing. And, and what will happen with the Teamsters, we're all watching and hoping, wishing for Well, uh, on a positive note, it didn't start in Amazon with just one store or two, and then all of a sudden you had 100. And Chris Smalls indicated they had, uh, wh what did he say? They had maybe a dozen to 18 stores that, uh, shops that had given him some interest. After the win, he said it was four times that. Oh, and that yeah. was that was yeah. three days ago. It's probably more than four times that now. So you know these things have an ability to be go viral. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, on on that, Pat. Let me. The answer is yes. We already have an example. Uh, Starbucks. Now, Starbucks is very different in many ways than Amazon, but it's there are some commonalities. But anyway, that began uh, last year in Buffalo with three stores. It was a very tiny tiny compared to the thousands of stores that they have, but it started with three and it's now expanded to almost 200 and oh, uh, 200. I didn't realize that. 200, yeah. And it, and it, and I wouldn't even pretend to know. I mean, there's probably many hundreds more where contact has been made. The Starbucks workers United have done this. And I think this is also very positive. I, one of the things I should have said uh, to just, thank the Amazon workers. One of the things that everyone will see as you do any amount of research to the extent you can in terms of any of these three large victories, Amazon, Starbucks, and the MIT group with UE, when you do any examination of this, you'll see the generally younger workforces using to the hilt all of the social media tools and communication devices, texting, uh, all manner of things, stuff that I am not even able to comprehend. But their ability to communicate with each other is a key development that didn't exist 
20 and 40 and 60 years ago. And it meant that at that time, you were a sitting duck all alone for the employer's assault. And that uh, you, unless you were the type of person that would go to a union meeting or seek out the union, you were just, uh, you were shark bait. But now there's a means for people to communicate with you and break through that isolation. And I think that's a key part of what's going on. And I, I think it's interesting to me, I caution some of the young people to do this. I say, you know, you've done really well, for instance, with a Facebook thing, but what are you gonna do when they turn off Facebook? And I think that day will come. I think we're beginning to see that. There's going to be times when upsurges come and these corporations that control these things and offer these free things, they're gonna shut them off. But that'll I'll take that as a sign of our progress. Right. When they begin to do that. Well, the TikTok, uh, I, I spent uh, an hour or so just in a rabbit hole going through all the TikTok and that it, these are sh uh, TikTok videos for Amazon and working with the employees and just showing fun and, you know, and hanging out at bus stops and sharing s'mores. And it, 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 it created this kind of collegial family like uh, atmosphere. And like you said, it's the social media is getting everybody on the same, the same link, getting everybody together, organizing. And you mentioned that in your, your writings earlier, way, you know, way before the Amazon thing, it's necessary to have one good platform to do the communication, which yeah. reminds me, Greg, we, we have Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, we need to start a TikTok account for this podcast. So I'll, I'll chat with you after. Isn't that what you, uh, those things that, Pezzes, like Pezzes, they come in a little container and you that's a TikTok. Oh, you know? God, you're, you're such a Luddite. Anyway. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm equally ignorant on this. Uh, okay. Hey. One, one thing I wanted to add, Pat, if I could, uh, that, um, again, anyone that does examine, to the extent you're able, uh, the Amazon campaign, let's just stop on that one. You'll see a lot of similarities between the way the union and the company campaigned, or it may appear that way, you know, the, the company had a meeting and the union was out on the street and both doing flyers and using social media. But I, I want to point out something that uh, truly was one of the remarkable and breakthrough pieces of the workers in this, which is any, any examination of this, you'll see that there was a tremendous uh, piece of mutual aid amongst these workers looking out for each other. Somebody's behind on their rent. Somebody has got, uh, they got injured. Somebody's been fired. And uh, somebody just needs something to eat because they've been on the bus for three hours to get here. And there's, you saw where that place is. There's no restaurants around out there or anything. So you saw all these just sort of basic, decent human behaviors, but not repeated by the company. And I think that the fact that that union was able to get out there every day on the street and have that face-to-face -face contact to show them who's your friend and who's not your friend is one of the key things that I applaud. And I know that as an organizer, we would, we would want those kinds of techniques. And, uh, and I, I think that one of the things you'll see here, uh, I'll make a prediction. Uh, if you know the configuration of the Staten Island Amazon, there's a bus stop there and there's public areas for union organizers and workers to congregate and talk to each other as they come into work. I will make a prediction that Amazon, as we speak, is measuring the front door of every single facility they have. They are going to go to work to get rid of these bus stops and all they're going to do, just going to do it because they know that the ability of workers to talk amongst themselves is dangerous for them. 
And I, I again, I just, I can't be more uh, happy with this whole thing. I, I guess, you know, coming back to the book about Foster, you know, I just had a sense five, six, seven years ago, I guess after Occupy, especially, and then Sanders' campaign certainly was very um, invigorating uh, for many of these young people. The thing, something was changing here. The, the demographics certainly was changing, but the, the degree of desperation of the workers was also shifting and maybe shifting in a different way. White workers may be more desperate about, about uh, student loans, people of color may be more uh, desperate about just basic survival, different differences, yes, but the, the, the common expression of organizing, let's make these damn bosses pay for our labor. Uh, and and I, I'll squeeze this in, guys, when, when you would talk, Pat, about the Democrats, you know, the Democrats have never figured out that workers want the bosses to pay them. We don't need to tax the rest of the work class to come up with another program so we can subsidize what the employers aren't providing. And I don't know that workers think it through all that well, but look, the wealth that Bezos alone is generating could pay for national health care, could pay for things. And it's this notion that somehow we have to, and this is maybe one of the greatest disservices of the Democrats is they want to they want to turn away the focus of the workers from making the bosses pay to somehow having the taxpayers pay. I have no objection to the taxpayers paying for things. That's why we have a civilization here, hopefully they can do it. But for, for any politician today to think that any of these incidental programs is going to be the solution to the Amazon workers problem is, is farcical. Amazon needs to pay for these things by paying a living wage and providing these benefits. And that's and, and I venture to say these workers would agree in droves because they're the ones creating all this wealth. Well, that's the when when Walmart tried to come to Tacoma, I remember writing the mayor and sending her a lot of articles about, you know, the economic benefit for the first couple of years is positive to Tacoma. After that, we end up subsidizing these. Exactly. We, we subsidize with our tax system these people, that's exactly what you're saying. We're paying for them. We're paying for it with food yeah. stamps, with chip programs, with free and reduced lunch, with all of this because they don't pay a minimum wage. And intentional intentional scheduling of not having full-time people yeah. so they don't have to. You know, These are models that are predatory capitalist models that I don't think get exposed as much as they should. So Chris, you are a breath of fresh air my friend and it's nice to see that you have done all this work and had very very multiple decades of of powerful good influence and you are now rolling up the baton and passing it to another chris and uh, let's wish him let's wish him godspeed huh well, and i i uh, although i have technically retired i will be going back to work here i've got number i mean there's a lot going on i should say i'm 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 very lucky that i have pensions which none of these workers have. So I'm at that point in my life where I am going, I'm already involved in the number of programs with other unions to do salting and do new organizing and stimulate these rebellions. And I, I just couldn't. And then there's uh, this whole audience of young workers, generally young workers out there that, uh, that, that really are responding to this. So I, I couldn't be more positive and excited than I was. And I, I too, like both of you, lived through the 90s and the two, I mean, these were some dreary decades here where just holding it together was considered successful. But, but as I said in some of the writing that I did, if you saw it, 
Those of us that held on here, brothers, comrades, we knew that these people were coming. We knew that they were coming because the employer creates these people. This, this filthy and rotten system creates these, these situations. I knew, I always held my breath. I watched people defect. I watched people deactivate. I watched people go off and make money, disappear. I didn't, and you didn't, and many thousands of us didn't. And it's because we all in our own way knew that these workers were going to come. And I just wish I could give them all a big welcome uh, and welcome the many thousands and hundreds of thousands and presumably eventually millions of workers that will come and see uh, you know, the, the, the reality of the class struggle and, and be willing to play their role in it. So I, I thank you guys uh, for flying the flag and here we are, we've held the fort. Thank you. No problem, thank you guys. Chris. Chris. Thanks much.